This is one of the Center's new series, Lore Civil Society Perspectives on the Emerging Digital World. Each discussion will be a call to action for civil society organizations to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. Now, you've, you've come to join us for this digital debate because of your interest and concern about safety in the digital world. And of course, we're all excited about the endless opportunities to connect, to share, to participate, and to gain knowledge through digital means, through social media. We know that there is a downside. There's a downside of potential misuse and abuse of data, of identities. There's surveillance happening, dis and misinformation, and indeed, real attacks of all sorts through the internet. We know that digital accelerates many things and it does accelerate vulnerability of those who already need protection or are being exposed because of their participation in the digital world. Our three panelists have experience and stories to share uh, which address these sensitive topics. I would like to very quickly introduce them. We have Benga Sesan, who's the executive director of the Paradigm Initiative, a Pan-African social enterprise who works on digital inclusion and digital rights. When you look at the homepage, their mission is to connect African youth and protect their rights. So that's a noble cause, and uh, we'll be very curious to hear from you, Ogbenga, in a minute how you do this. There's a lot of academic credentials that I don't want to mention, but you can find them on the homepage of the center. Uh, quite impressive indeed. We also have Dr. Suchigar, who is the Director of Global Engagement and Impact at the World YWCA, also an academic and former, or maybe even now, researcher, but of course, overseeing at the moment the daily engagement of this wonderful organization with regard to programs, mission impact, and communications. And the World YWCA is a strong collaborator and supporter and our youngest or newest member of the International Civil Society Center. So welcome, Suchi. And the last but not least, uh, Trezor, Trezor Kalonji from the Democratic Republic of Congo, based in Kinshasa. You're the content editor and moderator of Abari RDC. That's a media project that is supported by RNW. Uh, many of you might have come across RNW, a Dutch-based NGO, which works on inclusive governance and, and all kind of good social causes. Trezor has revealed that he's a video game developer, of course, a blogger, a journalist, an author, and uh, last but not least, the president of the Young African Leaders Initiative. So lots of hats that you're wearing. So there's a lot to talk about. I'm now going to invite all three panelists to give us something like five to seven minutes, and I'll be looking at the watch, of basically explaining a little bit of what you're doing and how you do it. So, Gabenga, how do you connect African youth and protect their digital rights? Thank you, Wolfgang, and it's great to have this conversation with everyone. And the reason for that for me, it's, it's not just because this is a topic of interest, it's also because demonstration of this need, I think, was emphasized again last year during the lockdowns, everything had to go online, work, school, entertainment, and other things. And what you would notice is that the more the internet becomes the place to be, then it means the more people pay attention to it. And as you can tell, it's not only the good people that pay attention. I always tell the story of how before 1999, in many of the countries where we work in Africa, before 1999, there were not too many 
governments that paid attention to the internet. But fast forward to 2008, between 2008 and now, you have a scenario where a lot of governments are not just paying attention to the internet, but they are also, they are also looking for opportunities to clamp down on what is now the last civic space for many of those countries. The work we do at Paradigm Initiative is built on a realization of the importance of policy. In 2008, we're basically just training young people and training them to get digital opportunities and to improve their lives. But while we continued to do that, we then realized that, you know, it wasn't just enough to train people to go to this digital space, but we also needed to get involved with the policy that determines what happens in that space. And between then, 2008 and 20, you know, 2013, we're just generally talking about passwords, mostly how to, you know, take care of your security using passwords and, and all that. Thankfully, encryption and things like, you know, second two-factor authentication and things like that are now popular. But what we realized from about 2013 until about 2018 was that because at that time, a lot of civil society actors, a lot of young people, a lot of people who were, of course, making comments about the politics and policies in their countries, a lot of them were beginning to notice there was a new trend of tampering with the online space, either through internet shutdowns, as we saw in Cameroon and Chad and a few other countries, or surveillance, where when you were you know, spending some time in the virtual space, you were definitely a target of governments that considered you dissidents. And of course, non-state actors also were getting people subject to the abuse of their data. And so what we started to do, apart from advocacy work, and in the early advocacy days, there were questions that were asked uh, of us, questions, funny, some of them very funny questions like, why are you so interested in people protecting their data? And you know, why are you talking about safety online? And we had one of those conversations with a security agency in Nigeria, and the head of the agency was quite interested in, you know, and the question for us was, are you guys trying to make terrorists feel safer? Or why are you talking about you against mass surveillance and things like that? From conversations like that, we went on to conversations where we actually literally were asked the question, what exactly do you want? So I'll speak very quickly to three things that we've done. The first was that when we were asked the question at Paradigm Initiative, what exactly do you want? You're saying that don't do this in terms of government surveillance, don't do this in terms of privacy breach and things like that. So what we did was in response to that question, we drafted a bill called the Digital Rights and Freedom Bill. Basically, a legal instrument that defines what the internet experience should be, including safety and access and all of that. That bill got into the parliament in Nigeria, got to the president's table, but it wasn't signed. And now it's back and it's going through the, you know, the process again. The second thing that we've done is to make sure that we have training for civil society actors, for media and for young people, and also for activists so that they can understand how to stay safe online. Don't forget that many people are sort of used to physical safety but in the digital environment it's a new environment for most of them at the time and we had to take them through how to secure your devices how to secure your space how to watch out for people who pretend uh, on social media to be your friends or to like what you want but are just basically carrying out surveillance on you and and that may get into trouble the third uh, thing that we've done that i would like to spend some more time on 
is a toolkit that we call Ayata. By the way, Ayata is a Yoruba word, uh, and it means bulletproof vest, basically. This is what the Yoruba hunters and warriors in ancient times used to put on so that when you shoot at them or try to attack them, they wouldn't get hot. So basically, that's why we chose to name that toolkit that. And what you have with a toolkit, three different things. One, you have a document that you can download and read. You know, you can learn about digital rights generally. Uh, you can learn about digital security and safety. You can learn about encryption, firewalls, two-factor authentication, you know, what kind of browsers you can use when there's suspicion of surveillance. What do you do if the internet gets shut down? What can you do, for example, if the internet is shut down in your community or in your country and you want to combine efforts with others to ask questions, you know, strategic litigation, going to court and things like that are the things that are described in this document. The second thing is that we've also made sure that it is not just about a document. We've also included some case studies. And the reason for the case studies is so that you can relate with the things that have happened. If you live in Central Africa, for example, you can understand what has happened with Cameroon and, you know, or Chad, and you can be able to define some of your own experiences based on that. And what you need to do is that we've introduced gamification to this. We know that Typically, people assume that things around digital security, some people assume it's left for geeks. You know, it's very technical, but we've introduced gamification, two different kinds of games. One basically allows you to learn a lot about security. You can test your assumptions about security and continue to learn. And the other one that I'm really, really, really proud of is one that documents the stories of three young women come from three different regions on the continent, their daily and lived experience, things around their experience and how they're able to navigate issues of safety, of online gender-based violence and things like that. And by the way, the toolkit and all of this Associated tools are available on ayeta.africa. Ayeta is A-Y-E-T-A dot Africa. I'll be glad to take questions if there are any, and I look forward to listening to my other colleagues and everyone here today. Thank you very much. Wonderful, Ben. I find this incredibly fascinating. Please stay on for just one minute because you've been so disciplined. Allow me one question. In your reports, you talk a lot about the major hurdle being digital literacy in Africa for people getting connected. Now you, you're having quite big ambitions and you're doing fascinating stuff, but how big is the gap for people to go over the entry threshold and then making that a progress to digital safety and digital security, you know, while they still maybe might be enjoying the basic remedies of the internet and social media? I'd like to say there are three categories of people when it comes to this. I'll start with the lucky ones. The lucky ones are those who are now beginning to come online for whom things like encryption are sort of by default. You know, a lot of people have fought the battles. And so when you use a tool right now, it's encrypted. Emails are encrypted. Chat apps are encrypted from end to end. So that, that is for, you know, a new generation of people who are coming online. So for them, the audios aren't a lot. I mean, so you're already used to it. It's not like someone who is used to a TV remote control and then has to use, you know, their hands to wave to be able to control devices. So for, for that category of people, it's not a steep learning curve. They're used to it. I mean, they actually demand encryption by default. Everything has to be saved by default. But for a second category of people, those who are already online, but who need to learn, you know, for many of those people, it's the fact that it may take a bad experience for some of them to take security very seriously. 
And the reason I say that is because there's a lot to learn. I don't forget this is the age where there's so much information coming at you that you literally have no time to consume everything you have. And then when there's a new layer and someone is saying, oh, you need to protect yourself and things like that, it may sound like a lot of assignment. For the third category, and this is where there's a lot of work that needs to be done, are people who are not online at all who will believe that half a loaf is better than none, even though it's not always true who you know are too excited to get online that they will get online even if it's not safe for them and so there's double jeopardy there first of all you're offering them a digital platform that is not safe but giving the impression that it's okay to come online it's like asking someone who had their money under their pillow under their pillow all their lives to come to a bank and then they go to a bank deposit their money in the bank and then the bank crashes or collapses or there is recession or something like that you've done them double you know that's that double jeopardy for them but the advantage is that many of the things that we know today about safety now informs the kind of advocacy that we have for this thought category in particular. For the thought category, you know, there's a lot of advocacy that is involved. For the second category, it's mostly about awareness and education. Uh, but for the first category I mentioned, it's security by default for them. And literally, they're digital natives who demand these things anyway. They're the lucky ones. Okay, thank you very much, Benga. We'll get back to you. And now uh, let's go straight to uh, Suchigar from the YWCA. Again, your organization and you yourself personally are dealing with a particularly vulnerable and of course also incredibly potentially powerful group, young women and girls. So how do you help them basically connect with also their protection in this dangerous and very exposing kind of world of uh, social media and, um, and the internet? Sushi, the floor is yours. Thanks, Wolfgang. Hi, everyone. I think, you know, when you when we say YWCA, we say safe space. The movement has been one of the pioneers about which has spoken and, and practiced uh, safe spaces globally. We are talking about very sensitive issues, talking about creating a safe, trustworthy environment. The safe spaces concept in itself has provided enough rooting in the YWCA movement to shape the movement, to strengthen it, to make sure that more and more young women and women feel safe as they come and join this movement. I just want to touch upon before I move to the digital side that YWCA safe spaces are rooted in eight principles or eight standards which are based on human rights and feminist values, which talk about accessible and safe leadership and participation, accurate and reliable information sharing, building trust, holistic approach, and intergenerational cooperation space. There's a high emphasis on dignity and respect of individuals and partnership and accountability. So these are the eight, eight standards, which we call golden standards of safe space. And so when, as, as a movement, when we advocate for creation and use of safe spaces for women and young women and other marginalized groups in all their diversities, we talk about that these standards need to be consistent in any model that is being created. By when I say any model being created, be specific to the regional and cultural realities or resources available in communities. That is just a key element of how our safe space is more of just a model, but more of a concept that weaves in into the different safe spaces models that we have. Now, in 2020, when the pandemic happened, Worldwide actually went on ahead to create the first YWCA safe space tool, virtual safe space tool, which was embedded in the fact that we were getting enough evidence from ground that young women and women were feeling left out, they were feeling stranded, they were not able to access these spaces in the YWCAs in communities, and they were not able to meet people. So there was a huge demand that was coming in to create something virtual 
which would help young women and women discuss and, and share and enable themselves while they were stuck in quarantine spaces, you know, at times also with their perpetrators. So while this was happening, at the same time, we were also advocating, you know, talking about the impact of pandemic leading to a shadow pandemic on women and young women. We were talking about the iceberg of how impact on women and young women of the pandemic was also a lot and invisible and how the gap with GBV is just going to increase. We launched a series of things where we were providing young women platforms to come and talk. And we ourselves faced excessive trolling and online bullying. And, and at one of our panels, there was pornography projection that happened, which made us step back and think about what's happening. You know, when we are talking about virtual safe spaces, what more do we need to do? We started to dig deeper into the realities and needs of these young women. And that's how the origin of our virtual safe space model came in, which was one kind of a way we mod we converted our safe space principles into use on virtually. Now I'm going to pause a bit because I have a video that I really want to share, which we did as part of our virtual safe space model. Women of all ages are more isolated with the quarantine and distancing protocols. Many of them are unable to reach out for support if they face domestic violence, are marginalized, pregnant, facing physical and mental health issues, or if they are just lonely. Time together and conversations regarding women's issues break down the barriers and stigma that women in all their diversity may face on a daily basis. A virtual safe space is an online place where these conversations can happen. All people in a virtual safe space are encouraged to share their experiences, opinions, ideas, and feelings without fear of judgment or threat. Start by choosing a virtual platform. When choosing your platform, make sure it's a suitable option for participants to join. A few things to keep in mind when deciding which platform to use is accessibility, language, and very importantly, security options to prevent cyberbullying and trolls. Elements to a successful virtual safe space include leadership and participation, accurate and reliable information, building trust, intergenerational cooperation, partnership and accountability. Dignity and respect must prevail at all times. Keep in mind that confidentiality must be ensured when conducting a virtual safe space. What happens in a virtual safe space stays in the virtual safe space. Give it a try and start creating a virtual safe space within your community. Let's support one another wherever possible and in a safe manner. For further guidance and information, reach out to the World YWCA. We are ready to support you and others in enabling more spaces where women, young women, and girls can voice their challenges and share ideas, opinions, and more to create change. So basically, this model, when we launched it, it was highly accepted. It was young women, especially in Asia, Africa, and Eastern Europe, took over the model. And more and more YWC has also started approaching us as to how they can adapt the model and, and look at different tools and techniques. For example, YWC Ethiopia and Kenya, through one of our interesting projects on reproductive rights and mental health, they created their own apps, mobile applications. So there was a lot of, on the concept of virtual safe space that we showcased, there was a lot of adaptation that happened. But during this process of young women playing with this model, we got to know a number of things. And I just want to touch upon three basic learnings that we had during this period. One was around knowledge and capacity building. Now, working on ground, the young women who were using this model constantly came back with the feedback that there is a need to do a lot of training and a lot of implementation, how to actually use this model and how to make sure that those who are facilitating these virtual safe spaces are capacitated, they have the resources. And so we did a lot of work around that in the last one year 
around knowledge and capacity building. The second was around inclusivity, reach, access, language in all its package. And when I say inclusive approach, you know, we know that digital spaces are not available for everyone. Internet is not there for everyone. Phones are not accessible to everyone. So what we reinforced on the fact was that virtual safe spaces, they're not exclusive in the way that they overtake safe spaces in physical sense, or they overtake other mechanisms to reach more women and girls. We were advocating for virtual safe space as an additional tool during the pandemic. And we've realized how critical it is to grow from there. The third main element that we have learned a lot from is data protection and privacy discussion. I remember one young woman who was in a virtual safe space, she said, you know, while the process is safe, while the process that you're talking about, the emphasis you are putting on the way the safe space is practiced and conducted, where everything is protected, nothing goes out from the safe space. The medium in itself, these digital tools, be it Zoom, be it, you know, go to meeting, be it other uh, WhatsApp, they are not safe. So what do we do about that? So in order to talk about that element, we have seen that a variety of things have happened. For example, our YWC in Ethiopia, the app that they have created based on these principles is something where the data stays with them. They, they, their app is called Telela, and it's a digital app where young women can consult experts, can have, have a virtual safe platform to talk about their mental health issues and reproductive rights issues, get counseling, get resources. And that's a moderation where they also, the mandate was that the data stays with them. Then the second bit was, what do we do? There's a need for extensive resources when we talk about creating such things. Because as a global organization, while we advocate for more digital safety, at the same time, creating our own platforms is a very expensive process. But Worldwide WCA has this year ventured into creating our own safe space-based networking platform, which is in pipeline right now, where we are trying to provide young women and women a safe platform where their data stays with us, where we are sure that the data is not being going to be used outside, the information is not going outside. Now, there are lots of elements there to look at, but I want to touch base on one thing. I think it's critical to see that as a global movement, in order to keep protecting and supporting women and young women and girls around the world in their own reality, we have to learn a lot more about this digital world. We are one of the oldest movement in the world. We have been providing safe spaces. We are now moving towards virtual and digital advocacy. As a humanitarian action, we constantly need to look into this. I just want to close with a very interesting quote by a leader from Belarus, which stands by me when we talk about virtual safe space or safe space, is that as a YWCA leader, we have to keep on keeping our community safe. And we also have to align with our standards at the same time to support our vulnerable groups. So when we say support our vulnerable groups, we don't say their opinions, but what they are as individuals, that they need to be treated with respect and dignity. And that's where the safe space in YWC is rooted in, be it any digital, physical, app or a platform, it's all rooted in respect and dignity. And that's where the data discussion also comes for us. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Suchi. And again, wonderful description of how your organization is dealing with what is now a double challenge, right? I mean, there is the gender dimension of violence, uh, clearly. And then there's the digital dimension of exposure and vulnerability. And on top of that, you know, the digital dimension does have a gender dimension as well. So I'd love you to expand a little bit on that, maybe in the second round, not quite now, because time is running. But really appreciate both your inputs and the little video. And we're moving on to Kezor, hoping that the internet connection to Kinshasa holds. We've introduced you. Um, you're working with bloggers, with young people. 
its media work, which is particularly exposing, but also powerful. Tell us about your experiences and your approaches as you work with, with the youth in your region. Thank you, Wolfgang. Uh, my name is Trezor Kalonji, and I am uh, the social media manager and marketer of Abari DRC. Abari DRC is a project that has been uh, launched in June uh, 2016 with uh, the support of the RNW Media. Uh, it's an online community which is gathering around uh, 100 bloggers and changemakers across uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So Abari has developed uh, a strong presence online and offering alternatives and perspectives to young audience. Our target audience is between 18 and 35 years old. Through videos, infographics, photographs, we encourage free and responsible discussions by our online community on the country's various political and social issues. So uh, with the RNW Media, we work with young people in order to support their desire to bring social change. We harness the potential of digital media channels so as to bring young people together so they could engage in issues that matter to them. And from that, we can uh, generate stories for advocacy. So we are working in a very restrictive uh, settings here due to cultural, religious, and social norms that are mostly conservative and uh, uh, that are also a barrier for young people to claim their rights. So in order for our digital communities to provide uh, a conduit from online experience to real life action, we place uh, or to put our digital community as places where young women and young men uh, can engage respectfully through dialogue on uh, sensitive uh, topics. Uh, we are using moderation and this is the key uh, of uh, RNW Media projects uh, from its different uh, country partners. We use moderation to assure that uh, our digital platforms are safe places where people can talk about sensitive topics and become open to critical thinking. So uh, Abari RDC is using active moderation, so, such as to make those kind of dialogues possible. When it is applied as an engagement strategy, moderation allows us to convert passive users into active participants. You know that uh, there are many platforms with uh, 500,000 people, 1 million people, but very few people who are uh, interacting on a daily uh, basis. But our moderation strategy is tailored so as to make most of those people who are passive to be active. And through that, we bring generalized groups into the conversation of uh, the subject that we are publishing. And we create a safe, uh, a safe space where those people feel not only able to take part in the discussion, but also to benefit from it. So uh, we have uh, local moderators who follow online discussions seven days a week. Uh, it's, uh, it's a bit uh, tricky. By engaging with users and asking specific questions on posts and comments, we encourage young people to think critically 
and to engage in constructive discussion. And for RNW Media, moderation is about looking at the conversation uh, taking place in our communities and generating dialogue from those conversations. So our moderation strategy is based on choices about how we want our online communities to interact and on encouraging positive behaviors that result in constructive and inclusive discourse. This enables safe spaces uh, where uh, young people can express their views freely without targeted, without uh, to see uh, the security, to see for what they think about, uh, about their needs and opinions, and engage in respect, uh, respectful discussion about topics that matter. Thank you both. Actually, uh, I think it's, it's wonderful to get that kind of description from your work where you bring communities, bloggers, young people together, to find a as well for a respectful dialogue. Um, but let me challenge you a little bit. I mean, there's a terrible thing happening, both in social media, but also to the people you work with. Uh, when I watch a little video that is available on RNW, the blogger talks about The question is, you know, on top of creating this respectful dialogue, is there more that can be done particularly to address the terrible things that are happening, both in hate campaigns and those bloggers and, and young people being thrown in jail. I mean, how how can you how can you work against this beyond creating a respectful atmosphere? So, uh, as I said, our key strategy is basing on moderation. We take part into discussions that, uh, that are generated online. We make sure that a barrier is also part of the discussion. We are not just passive, uh, looking at people, uh, wondering about uh, this is good, this is not good, we should do this or that. We are taking part to the discussion. We have uh, uh, like uh, a framework uh, that enables us to know the way we can uh, monitor dangerous, uh, hateful speeches, for example, the way to profile people who may be considered as uh, dangerous threats, the way we can approach those people to make that they may change behaviors. We have seen them during uh, some of our online campaigns, for example, about homosexuality, where you know that in uh, African countries it's something which is taboo. When you are talking about that, you are threatened. Uh, they may even uh, post messages uh, calling people to kill you by giving you your addresses where you live and so on. But uh, we were we are able for years to change some people from uh, making so that they leave the extremist uh, side of what they are so that they could be more moderated in their views. So our role is really to, uh, I, I, can, I don't know how to say it in English, um, unpolarize. I don't know if it is uh, the right the right word. Depolarizing. I hope someone here may may help. So, in the discussion, the moderator is targeting those who are polarizing the discussion, those who are uh, putting the flames so as to to make that okay, uh, this this guy is is gay, he has to die. This guy, uh, this woman, uh, she has not the right to, take, to say this kind of things in this platform. Uh, she has to mute. She has not the right to say something. But the way we're addressing those people, the way we're dealing with trolls, we have many trolls on our, on our platforms, makes that even those, act, those passive users who are watching at the conversation, they say, okay, 
So there are arguments that have been developed by a very older people who support their point of views. We follow those views. We don't think that it is uh, something which is uh, to be taken on an extremist, an extremist uh, level. So, and with the time you see someone who was asking for killing homosexual one year ago, saying, "Okay, they have rights. They have the rights." To, uh, to make love like they want, they, they have the right to, to do some things. I think killing is not something uh, useful for that. And it is at that level that we see that our approach has worked to change people's behavior. Great. Thank you very much. It's a fabulous response and, and great to hear this. What we'll do is a very quick round of questions only from the panelists. So you've spoken, now you you may ask a question to one of your fellow panelists, so to make this a bit of an interactive exercise. Uh, all, of, all three of you are experts in your own rights, and it's it's really impressive to see what you're doing and also you know what you're challenged by. Can we have a very quick round of you just putting one or maximum two questions to your fellow panelists? We'll collect those, and then after we've heard from the chat, we'll have a final round of responses. So asking Suchi to start us off with your question or questions. My first question is for Benga. I am actually very keen to know uh, a little bit about data privacy in Nigeria. You know, uh, I've heard stories around how data, especially of women, young women and women from Uber app that has been taken up and it has been misused. So what has been the experience? Because I've seen it globally happen a few countries and I really want to know how that has been the case in Nigeria. And then I have another question for Dresser. I actually want to know a little bit more around the online communities and, and when they operate a little bit more around the sensitive issues, contextualizing, getting experts, like how do they do that? Yeah, those are my two questions. Cool. So I'm calling upon Benga now and please don't give an answer yet. Hold the thought, but pose your question <laughs> as well to whomever you like. We've got Suchi here now, so I'll, I'll just ask my first question. I think everyone knows YWCA, right, in terms of legacy institutions. So my, my curiosity, you did address the, the complexity of being an old institution doing new things. But I'm just curious, does that give you legitimacy? Because for you to become digital yourself as the YWCA, you must have gone through a lot. Uh, does that lend a lot of legitimacy and, you know, credence? you know, to your ability to then talk to people. It would be very interesting to, to know that. And I was going to ask Tresor a question. One of the big challenges that we face in the many countries across the continent where we work is we work in digital. Bandwidth is a lot of requirement for us to test the things that we work on. Meanwhile, bandwidth and stability isn't assured. How do you navigate, you know, for people who you're designing for, the excuse may be around, okay, we can't uptake it because we don't have access, but you are the designer. How do you navigate that such that you're able to test your own platforms and then able to then, you know, prefer that as a solution to people who are working on it? Great. Uh, and again, Trezor, if I may ask you not to answer, but also pose your two questions, please. Thank you. My first question is to um, the Bengba. Uh, okay. So, um, you have talked uh, at the moment about gamification. I think it's, it's interesting for me because uh, I'm working in the video game industry also, even if it is uh, a little bit amateur in, uh, in our 
country. But uh, in RLW, we are using gamification uh, when we are uh, uh, using surveys, surveys to get feedback from our audience about some specific topics, especially when we want to launch a digital campaign or organize offline events, because we are not entirely digital. Habari is also, uh, is also organizing offline activities. We take a topic, we, uh, we call for change makers, uh, members of parliament, uh, minister for some key instances, and they come and they discuss you directly. Come back to your question, Pedro. Okay, okay. So, uh, can you please tell us more about the way you use uh, gamification in your context? Because uh, we can also adapt it to to our situation here. And um, for um, Dr. Suchi, um, uh, for women, is there, um, I can say, what are the main barriers that uh, women are facing when using uh, your digital platforms in India? Uh, we know that uh, there are many, many women uh, uh, than men in demogra demographically, but is it the same on the digital landscape? Uh, do you have, uh, I can say, some, uh, some statistics about the number of women who are engaging online in India, and what are the main topics on which they are, to which they are interested in? Wonderful. So we're getting questions now in the chat, and I'm just mentioning a couple of them because then we'll have a final round of each of you being able to address or shun away or ignore, depending on how you feel, some of the questions that are being paused. There's a couple of questions about inclusivity, both in terms of access, bandwidth, but also how about those who have visual or hearing disabilities, for instance, how do we reach those? And there was questions around those who develop tools. How are they being accessed and uptaken? And then there's questions about language, uh, also technological terms. So there's a lot around accessibility and how do we make our efforts really inclusive? And then there's a longer question about the online community discussions by RW. How do you maintain anonymity and the likes? While you are thinking about those, you can get back, you have access to the chat, but those were the directions of the questions we're getting. Now we have about three to four minutes maximum for everyone. Let me start with Gbenga. I know you've been the most disciplined, so I'm putting my trust in you in terms of obeying time and please stick with three minutes and try to address what's been asked. That's a lot of pressure, but I'll try. So uh, Suchi, I think in terms of data privacy in women in Nigeria, to be honest, like I said earlier, it's double jeopardy for women and, and for a few other groups because there's a general problem for the fact that there's data abuse impunity and there's the fact that there is no primary law on data protection in Nigeria. So what happens is when the wrong thing is done, ability for you to seek redress, you know, you have two major challenges. One is a legal challenge, the other is a major social challenge. So the fact that you even want to seek redress makes what you're fighting even more popular. So in the case of revenge porn, if you take the case to a police station, the likelihood for them to say, let's see what you're complaining about is very high. And you don't definitely want to share that more. So I think it's it's a case of double jeopardy. And to the question around gamification, and I think this is a general thing for those of us who will use gamification in our work, because to be honest, there's a whole generation that would not read toolkits, that will not watch videos if there's no entertainment value to it. Uh, so the three Three key things that we look at are context, content, and contact. 
I love when we discuss that on the team because it's quite easy to remember. In terms of context, it has to be relevant. You can't tell me the story of someone from Japan and expect me from Uganda to relate. The game has to be relevant. The other is in terms of content, it has to be fun. I have to want to come back to it. There are too many things that I can go to on Instagram to watch for free on Facebook that are fun. For you to get my attention, then you have to think of the content. And the other is in terms of the contact. A great product, they say, sells itself. It's not true. You have to reach out. You have to make sure it's accessible so that, you know, people who are otherwise impaired will be able to gain, you know, access to it. So we talk about context, content and contact. Thank you. There's a suggestion to move the digital debate to a gaming platform. Actually, we might take this up for the future. But thanks a lot for this. Tresor, I think he's been listening and he's been trying to maintain bandwidth and connection. There's a couple of questions that went your direction. Tresor, why don't you continue with uh, some of the stuff that was on the chat? Hope you can still hear and see us. I will first ask the answer to the question related to bandwidth, I think. How are we deal here with bandwidth and access problems? And also how we protect our online community. So for access, we have uh, around 20, 21 million uh, internet users in the DRC. Uh, it's not too much, uh, but uh, most of those people, uh, 4 million approximately, are active on our social media. So uh, we go in social media to look for those people and so as to be able to reach as many people as possible. We have designed our websites to be able to access Facebook for free because many people here due to economic constraints use Facebook for free. Uh, they charge uh, some money but uh, you don't have access to pictures, you don't have access to videos, you just see text. So our website is designed also to, to take that into, into, into consideration so as that uh, we don't uh, put that part of uh, social media users out of our reach. It's there approximately uh, five to 600,000 people using that feature. So it's important also to, be, to have a responsive website uh, so that they can access. And about anonymity, uh, we got some challenges. Uh, there is a case, for example, of a woman who participated in one of our offline activity, and she uh, was uh, raped by one of uh, her, her relatives. So she testimonied in front of the camera, but after that, she had problems with her relatives and so on. So we have a policy that enables us to uh, protect those people by changing their names, by using uh, some advanced features so as to keep their identity uh, seat. And we also, RNW is also, of course, complying with GDPR in Europe. Uh, here it takes time to be implemented by, but we also use, uh, we also follow those rules. Suchi, you have the final word of this round. There's a couple of interesting questions that were posed to your direction around the legitimacy um, that you want to maintain as the YWC, also the main barriers. But there is an interesting question in the chat that just came in uh, towards the end, which is asking the question, are digital safe spaces to women, LGBTQI men are even possible, particularly in the considering the cultural context that we're all struggling with and you're a global organization. So you want to include that in your deliberations, please. 
Okay, so two things, because we have been rooted in the cultural reality of these communities, you know, we are community, YWCA is community, there is high legitimacy we get when we are introducing new things also, there are two, three things which are critical to this process is one is, we don't sit here and design these things, we work, we co-create these tools with the young women, with the women themselves, so they are part of the process, so the act of creating itself becomes empowering and gives legitimacy to the process. This is something I need. This is something which is reality, which is my reality. And then there is easier adaptation that happens through those leaders who are part of the process further into the community. So for us, it's a very strategic process that we entail with co-creation, where we say, just not capacity building after the tool is creation, but the creation of the tool in itself becomes empowering. And then, you know, there are huge barriers. We very openly say that digital safe spaces are not safe. Any digital safe is not 100% safe. That's the reality. So while we give tips on oh, password protection and social media privacy and all of these things, we also at the same time emphasize on how we still need to maintain and practice those feminist principles, those eight core principles, and give legitimacy to the individuals and their opinions if they want to stay anonymous the environment creation in, in this space is very uh, focused on building that trust. To answer to Trezor's question, I think globally, there are huge barriers we have. You know, Technology access is one of the biggest barriers, which is why we say digital safe spaces are not the only way to reach to young women. There is high barrier, in, especially with the impact of COVID being stuck in home, You know, not being able to access even technology because sometimes the perpetrators are around you. That's a big barrier. We had reports coming from a lot of our YWCAs when COVID happened that their call rates, the call help rates just went down because they were stuck in the house. So in those spaces, we were seeing at how we can look at other systems to promote that space. So that comes with it. And I think the fact that we constantly have this inflow and outflow with the community, with these young women, and we are designing based for them and helping them customize and contextualize, that's what gives us a lot of legitimacy on ground. To answer to one of the questions, I think it is the whole idea of digital safe space open for women, LGBTIQ and men even possible. Well, yes, I won't say completely. We as a movement have seen that these principles, when they get implemented on ground, there is a kind of community building, which actually makes safe spaces in digital safe space also possible. I'm not talking from just data perspective. I'm talking from that safety net perspective, feeling safe perspective. I'll give you an example. In CSW this year, we were hosting a panel with LGBTIQ leaders sharing their stories as to when they felt they're included in, in a global movement. And when they share their anecdotes, we had chat pod where somebody came in and started trolling the speakers and the whole community stood up. As a panel holder, what we did was we had safeguarding mechanisms. We developed steps. We started with the fact this is a safe space. We respect everyone's individual identity and their opinion. And when we did that bit of safeguarding, the community actually stood up and asked the person to leave. There was this whole idea around how World YWC and YWCA safe space idea is rooted in sisterhood, in that community feeling. And that in itself gave legitimacy. All the speakers felt so empowered during that process that them sharing what is their reality they're not going to be at the receiving end of being trolled. Yes, it is possible. I won't say always. I do think there's excessive work that needs to be done in that, especially from the perspective of data protection, and in, especially in, in times of how global conflict and peace work and justice work is being done.
Fabulous. I, I really want to thank everyone. The panel has been wonderful and not just the panel, I think the work that you're doing and you're trying to help everyone cope with the rapid and sometimes very dangerous developments in the digital world. It's been incredible learning for us, but I hope for each other as well. We've had a couple of questions that might not be exhaustively answered, but of course, these debates are meant to stimulate a further exchange. The center will take some of this up as we go forward with you and other partners. I want to thank everyone who has been involved, particularly uh, Ryan uh, as a technical support in the background and Carl Steinecker, who's uh, the mastermind behind the series. And the last announcement on the 1st of July, there will be the next digital debate on digital vaccination certificates for safe travel, the sorcerer's apprentice, we call it. Thanks everyone for joining. On behalf of our wonderful three panelists and the International Civil Society Center, thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time.